Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, I'm Paul Dennis, and this is another Dennis Deep Dive. Each month, I'll release a cricket history podcast on a topic that fascinates me and hopefully fascinates you too. The shows will be exclusively available for our elite-level Patreon subscribers. Here's episode two, Don Bradman at the Oval. Back in the 1990s, I was watching an Ashes test from the Oval in London on television. You know the ground, the one with the gasometer in the background and the one where the English Test Match summer traditionally concludes. They put a list on the TV screen of the highest test batting averages of all time at the ground. Don Bradman's name headed the list. No surprise, you might think. But Ian Chappell in commentary was surprised. He had a little chuckle and said words to the effect of, gee, that's quite amazing. This is the ground where Bradman made a duck in his last test innings, yet he still has the best average here. I hadn't thought about this for years, but a few weeks ago I happened to cross the list of best averages at the Oval as it stands today about a quarter of a century later. Bradman is still on top. And I instantly thought back to Chapel's statement, and now that I know a lot more about Bradman, it dawned on me just how significant the Oval was in Bradman's career and indeed his life. Time after time, big things happened to him at the ground and around the time he played there. Some of his greatest triumphs and some of the lowest of his rare low points occurred at the Oval. Nothing was ever ordinary for Don Bradman at London's Kennington Oval, and I thought this would make a great subject for a Dennett's deep dive. The first time Don Bradman arrived at the Oval, he was just 21 years old and was buzzing with determination. He had a major point to prove at this ground. He'd been eagerly waiting to play here. It was 1930 and Bradman was on his first tour of England. 
He had played just four test matches to this point back in Australia in 1928-29. The ageing Australian side of that summer had been thrashed 4-1 by England and the cricket was grinding and tedious. But Bradman had been a burst of colour and brilliance. He took on the bowling, scored two centuries and two fifties and became a national hero. Not everyone was convinced though. Some of the English predicted he would fail in England. English seam bowler Morris Tate had taken Bradman aside and whispered, Don, learn to play straighter before you come to England. If you don't, you won't get many runs. But the main voice of warning belonged to Percy Fender, a former test cricketer who had covered the Ashes as a journalist. Fender's thoughts were dramatised in the 1984 Kennedy Miller television miniseries Bodyline. Here is John Gregg as Percy Fender. But he has no technique. Now, he can get away with this on those true, hard Australian pitches. But put him on one of our green strips, with Morris seaming the ball late. Oh, no, he's too unorthodox. Fender was still a first-class cricketer in 1930. In fact, he was captain of Surrey, and Surrey's home ground is the Oval. Fender's assessment of Bradman must have made an impact, because 20 years later, Bradman referred to it at unusual length for him in his autobiography. He included a quote from Fender about his technique, which concluded, he does not correct mistakes or look as if he were trying to. Bradman then added, I thought it best not to make any mistakes against Surrey. The big day arrived on the 24th of May, 1930. Don Bradman's oval debut. Australia batted and their scores were low. Woodville 50, Jackson 9, Richardson 32, Ponsford 1, McCabe 2 and Fairfax 28 not out. And here's how Bradman described his own innings. Rain caused stumps to be drawn before time, but Australia put together 379 for five wickets, of which my total was 252 not out, and undoubtedly that was one of the best innings I ever played against an English county. The second hundred was scored in 80 minutes. That was more space than Bradman gave some of his test centuries, and it's an insight into his hyper-competitive nature. And here's how the Bodyline miniseries, Imagine Fender might have spoken to his friend and Surrey teammate Douglas Jardine, played by Hugo Weaving, in the dressing room afterwards. It begins with Jardine chuckling at the humiliation his friend had just experienced. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, what a fool he made of me. He put every ball exactly where he wanted, where it would cause me the most humiliation. Oh, don't worry, Percy. Be forgotten in a month. It's going to destroy every bowler in the land. <laughs> it's going to be a bleak summer. It will indeed. In a sign of how different things were back then, after play, there was no team coach to board. Instead, Bradman had to catch the tube from Oval to his hotel at St Pancras and was mobbed by fans all the way to the station and throughout the journey. It was a taste of what he was about to experience throughout the rest of his career and he hadn't yet even played a test match in England. The rest of the match was washed out, but after this innings, Bradman was now on track to score a thousand runs before the end of May. This almost mythical feat had first been achieved by W.G. Grace in 1885, and on the last day of May 1930, Bradman matched him. To this day, only eight players have ever been able to do it. To score at such a prolific rate from when the season begins, battling wet weather and green pitches makes the achievement almost but not quite impossible. And Don Bradman had done it at his first attempt. So much for needing to change his technique. Australia played Surrey a second time midway through the tour, and this time Bradman only made five. But by the time the teams arrived at the Oval for the fifth and final test, 
Bradman had ripped the record book to shreds. He'd made a century in the first test, a double century in the second, and a triple century in the third, with his 334 being the highest ever test score at the time. The series was tied at one all, and it was decided that the test would be timeless and played to a finish. Bradman's first oval game had been personally significant, but his test debut at the ground would be internationally significant, because whichever side won this test would win the Ashes. Back in Australia, huge audiences stayed up listening to synthetic broadcasts and score updates each night. Radio sales had skyrocketed throughout the series. England won the toss and made 405. Australia's openers of Ponsford and Woodville made a good start, and when Ponsford was out for 110, with the score at 1 for 159, Bradman arrived at the wicket for the first time at the Oval in a test match. At 3 for 263, he was joined by Archie Jackson with the game in the balance and the pitch difficult due to rain. Bradman wrote, Both of us were hit several times, and Archie was black and blue at the finish. These rain-damaged pitches are all in the game, of course, however unpleasant it may be to find yourself batting on them, and you can guess how pleased I was for the sake of my side that I managed to stay and collect 232 runs. And that understated way was the way that Bradman described his having scored the highest ever test score at the Oval at the time. Together, Bradman and Jackson had put on 242 runs, with Jackson contributing 73 from 311 balls. Jackson was even younger than Bradman. He hadn't yet turned 21. He'd scored a sparkling 164 on debut in the Ashes of 1928-29, and he and Bradman were great friends. The world was seemingly at his feet, but he was to die of tuberculosis just two and a half years later. Bradman was a pallbearer at his funeral. Australia bowled England out for 251 to win by an innings in 39 runs, and they won the Ashes 2-1. Bradman's 974 runs in the series are still the most runs ever scored in a Test series. Even more remarkable is that having now scored three Test double centuries, he had already made more double centuries than any other batsman in Test history. And this is a record that he holds to this day. Bradman finished with 12 double centuries. Kumar Sangakkara went close with 11. Brian Lara is third on nine. But Bradman has remained on top for 91 years, although Virat Kohli, currently in equal fourth with seven, might be a threat. Trevor Wignall of the Daily Express newspaper in England wrote of Bradman at the end of the series, I have no hesitation in calling him the world's greatest athlete, and I am nearly tempted to throw everything overboard and write him down as the most remarkable the world has ever known. But amidst the tumultuous success, a storm was brewing, with the oval test at its heart. It would come to be called Bodyline. When Douglas Jardine was appointed captain of England for the following Ashes to be held in Australia in 1932-33, he knew the only way England could hope to win was to somehow curtail Bradman. Jardine came up with a tactic of using a battery of fast bowlers to bowl short-pitched balls at the batsman's left shoulder to a packed leg-side field. It worked. England won 4-1 and Bradman averaged only 56.57, the lowest of his career. It was legal but wildly unpopular in Australia and led to the most acrimonious Ashes series of all time. According to both Jardine and Harold Larwood, the bowler who would be the most famous exponent of Bodyline, the idea for the tactic came from the Oval Test of 1930. Jardine wrote, Though I did not take part in the Test match against Australia at the Oval in 1930, I have been told on all sides that Bradman's innings was far from convincing on the leg stump whilst there was any life in the wicket. And Larwood said, 
Fast leg theory bowling was born in the test match at Kennington Oval in August 1930. A spot of rain had fallen. The ball was popping. My great friend, the late Archie Jackson, stood up to me, getting pinked once or twice in the process, and he never flinched. With Bradman, it was different. It was because of that difference that I determined then and there that if I was again honoured with an invitation to go to Australia, I would not forget that difference. And once more, here's a quote from the miniseries Bodyline for a dramatic fictionalisation of what the two of them might have said to each other. What about the Oval, the last test? I'd rather forget that. He scored 232. After rain had stopped play, you were brought back on. I got a bit of lift and thought for a moment I might have him. As I came in to deliver, I noticed him sort of uh, moving, sort of... Um... Edging away? Nah, I don't know. I thought I saw his feet move. Sorry, Mr Jardine, it's not much, but it's the only time I sensed I had him in trouble. Thank you, Harold. Don Bradman was scathing of the notion that his innings of 232 at the Oval could have inspired Bodyline. In his book, he quotes newspaper sources referring to his bravery in the innings and also asserts that although Larwood got him out in the end, that I was given out caught behind off Larwood when I did not hit the ball. It swung away slightly as I played at it. Noticing the swing, I turned my bat at the last moment and was amazed when Larwood appealed. He was the only one who did and more amazed still when the umpire gave me out. And figures would support that Larwood did not trouble Bradman in the 1930 Ashes with Bradman facing 147 balls from him and scoring 137 runs with just that one contested dismissal. Whichever way you look at it, Bradman's experiences at the Oval on his first tour of England were dramatic, and the drama would only grow throughout his career. By Bradman's next tour of England in 1934, he was Australian vice-captain, but he was not in good health, with people noting that he looked gaunt and pale. His first match at the Oval on this tour against Surrey saw the beginning of the only form slump of his career. Bradman was to go 13 consecutive innings without scoring a century. Now, normally you'd expect a single-figure score to start a slump, but this is Bradman. He made 77 against Surrey at the Oval on that occasion. And his next 12 scores were 29, 25, 36, 13, 65, 25, 17, 27, 61 not out, 30, 71, and 6 not out. 482 runs and an average of 43.82. For the majority of batsmen, this would be a very solid run. For Bradman, it was literally his career low. Incidentally, in that sequence, you would have heard scores of 27 and 61 not out. They were the scores he made during Australia's second game against Surrey of the Tour. And it could be argued that the 61 not out in the second innings was potentially a match-winning score. Requiring only 111 to win in a low-scoring match, the Aussies lost four wickets on the way, the other batsmen making 10, naught, 3, 31, and naught not out. Who knows? If Bradman had also fallen cheaply, Surrey might have won. So, as I say, it was a slump, but these things are all relative. That string of lowish scores also included the first three test matches. But Bradman put things right in the fourth test, though, making 304. At the other end, Bill Ponsford made 181. Their partnership of 388 was then the highest of all time in Test history. It's still the 19th highest ever. But rain saved England in the fourth Test, and the Ashes were once again all square when the sides went to the final Test match at the Oval for another timeless Test match. Australia won the toss and batted. With the score on 21, Bill Brown was out, and Bradman came in to join Ponsford. What followed was utter destruction. This time, Ponsford top-scored with 266, from 422 balls. Bradman made 244 from just 271 balls, 
a strike rate of 90. Bradman made all of those runs inside one day. It would be another 46 years before a touring batsman would make 200 runs in a day at the Oval. Viv Richards made exactly 200 in a day against England in 1976, and he went on to make 291. But Viv's strike rate was only 75. In fact, the only faster beginnings in Oval history was Ian Botham's 208 versus India in 1982 at a strike rate of 92, slightly better than Bradman's 90. When Bradman was out late on day one, Australia were two for 472. The partnership between Ponsford and Bradman was a mammoth 451, beating their own world record from the previous test. This remained the highest test partnership in history for 57 years, only being beaten in 1991 by Andrew Jones and Martin Crowe. It is still the fourth highest stand for any wicket in test history. English fans had dreaded the prospect of Australia's two most prolific batsmen turning it on together, and now it had happened twice in a row. Little wonder that, so the story goes, five years later, upon the fall of Mussolini, which left Hitler as Europe's sole dictator, a member of the House of Commons in Britain said, We've got Ponsford out cheaply, but Bradman is still batting. Australia went on to make 701 and bowled England out for 321. Australia batted again, making 327, and ended up winning the match by 562 runs, winning the Ashes back. Australia was never to lose the Ashes again during Bradman's career. In Australia's second innings, Bradman had once again been amongst the runs. He had swiftly moved to 77 not out from 105 balls when he shaped up to face fast bowler Bill Bowes. I sometimes think of this moment. Bradman would have been on top of the world. His health had seemingly returned along with his form. Yet, as Bowes charged in, and even though Bradman's test career would last for another 14 years, he would never score another run in test cricket at the Oval. And, in just a month, he would be on the verge of death. Bowes hit Bradman's stumps with that next ball, and Bradman walked off with 758 runs for the series at an average of 94.75. He finished the tour with two glorious, carefree centuries in festival matches. His 149 not out against an England 11 included 30 runs off one over, and his 132 against Leveson Gower's 11 took only 90 minutes. It was exhilarating batting, but his body contained a time bomb. On the 22nd of September, one week before the side was due to begin their journey by ship back to Australia, Bradman began to feel sick, very sick, with abdominal pains. The pains swiftly grew worse, and Bradman realised something was seriously wrong. His teammates were very concerned, and a doctor, Dr John Robert Lee, was called that evening. Dr Lee visited again the next morning, baffled by a set of contradictory symptoms, and then went on a long drive alone in the country to give him time to think. When he returned, Dr Lee had made up his mind. Even though the symptoms were confusing, he was convinced Bradman had appendicitis. Bradman was rushed to hospital by ambulance and was operated on instantly by Sir Douglas Shields, a famous London-based Australian surgeon. The operation was a success, but Bradman's condition was grave. His appendix had been borderline gangrenous. Poison was now swirling through Bradman's body a couple of decades before the advent of antibiotics. Bradman would live or die based only on his own strength. And from everything I've read, I think the expert view was that it was pretty much a 50-50 chance that he would survive. The reaction across the British Empire was big. King George V asked for regular updates saying, I want to know everything. The hospital was flooded with offers of blood donations and rumours swirled. In Australia, Bradman's wife Jessie 
instantly set off for England, catching a train to Melbourne with the intention of taking the first train to Perth to catch up to a steamship that was already bound for England. But upon her arrival in Melbourne, it was all over the radio that Bradman had died. Four years earlier, the Australian cricketers had been able to make a special radio telephone call back to Australia to speak to relatives and had marvelled at the amazing new technology. Now, Jessie was able to use this technology at a crucial time. She telephoned the hospital in London directly and was reassured that Bradman was still alive. However, Jessie Bradman did not avail herself of a different new technology. The aviator, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, offered to fly her to London, but she declined. Smith was to die in a plane disaster the following year while flying from England to Australia. By the time his wife arrived in London, Bradman had pulled through. But it had been very close and he had been lucky. According to one of his biographers, Irving Rosenwater, a man not given to exaggeration, Bradman had hovered at death's door as closely as has any man who has come through and survived. Had it all happened just a week later, Bradman would have been on board a ship at sea rather than in London with access to the world's best surgeons. Incidentally, if Bradman had died at this point, his test record would have been 28 test matches, 3,849 runs, 15 centuries and an average of 98.69. As it was, his career now took a different course. He played no cricket at all in the summer of 1934-35 and missed test cricket by not going on Australia's tour of South Africa the summer after that on medical advice. This meant that Victor Richardson, the grandfather of the Chapel brothers, became Australian captain rather than Bradman. But by the time Australia next toured England, Bradman was captain. He was 29 years old and in the most consistently brilliant form of his career. His batting on the 1938 tour was almost indescribable. 26 innings, 5 not outs, 13 centuries, 5 fifties, 2,429 runs at an average of 115.66. It will come as no surprise, therefore, that in the sole match he played against Surrey, Bradman top-scored with 143. After this innings, played on the 21st of May, Bradman had 876 runs for the season. A thousand runs before the end of May was once again a possibility. He got the runs in the next innings, making 145 not out against Hampshire, reaching his 1,000 on the 27th of May. In over 150 years of English cricket, Bradman is, to this day, the only player to score 1,000 runs before the end of May twice. Australia's test side was not so strong in 1938, but thanks significantly to Bradman, Australia was leading 1-0 and had therefore retained the ashes coming into the Oval Test. One of the earlier tests had been washed out completely, and Bradman had scored a century in each of the other three. Given England could still level the series, it was deemed that this would be a timeless test, as had been the case in 1930 and 1934. The pitch produced was very flat, and crucially, England won the toss and batted, and batted, and batted. Len Hutton, then 20, made a triple century, and he soon honed in on Bradman's 334 from 1930, which was at the time the highest ever Ashes score. Hutton duly broke the record, with Bradman the first person to shake his hand. Hutton went on to make 364 from 847 balls. At the time, the highest score in Test cricket. On and on England went. Australia already had one batsman, Jack Fingleton, injured and unable to bat. In desperation, to give his bowlers rest, Captain Bradman brought himself on to bowl some leg spin. Unfortunately, the pitch had been so worn by the bowler's footsteps 
that an indentation had developed. And in coming into bowl, Bradman planted his foot on the edge of the indentation and rolled his ankle. He collapsed to the ground in agony and had to be carried off. He had chipped a bone in his ankle and would take no further part in the match. At this moment, England captain Walter Hammond did something quite extraordinary. He declared instantly. What was the score? Seven for 903. That's right. As England went through the 600s and 700s and 800s, Hammond had been so scared of what Bradman might do on this flat pitch. Would he score 500? Who knows? That he thought, we'd better keep on batting. But the moment that Bradman could not be a factor in the match, Hammond declared. And with Bradman out of the picture, the Australians collapsed. They were bowled out for 201 and 123 when they followed on to be beaten by an innings and 579 runs. By far the biggest innings defeat in Test history, a record which still stands. So the Oval up till now, a scene of great success for Bradman was the place where he had probably the lowest moment of his career to that time. As Bradman was helped from the field four days before his 30th birthday and at the absolute peak of his career, it's sad to think that he wasn't to play another test match for over eight years. He'd be 38 when he next did so. Cricket Australia had scheduled no international cricket in Australia until the ashes of 1940-41, but of course the war meant that these never took place. Bradman's form in Sheffield Shield cricket in those final two seasons of the 1930s was superb. In the summer of 1938-39, he batted seven times, scoring six consecutive centuries, and he finished with an average of 153.16. In the season of 1939-40, he averaged 122.91. Oh, what might have been. But of course, the war intervened. After the war, Bradman made one more tour of England in 1948. By now, he was in his 40th year and had announced that this would be his farewell to Test cricket. The interest in the Australians was unprecedented, and after the horrors of war, the joy at having the ashes on again was palpable, and of course, everyone was wanting to see what Bradman would be able to do on his final tour. Australia played Surrey twice at the Oval, and Bradman scored a century in each match. As a batsman, he wasn't quite the Bradman of old, but still managed a century in the first test, and in the fourth test, scored 173 not out to help lead Australia to a chase of 404 on the final day, still the third highest target successfully chased in history. And his team was a champion one, arguably the best test side ever. They won the Ashes 4-0 and went through the tour undefeated and became known as the Invincibles. And so to the fifth and final test match and Bradman's last appearance at the Oval. England were bowled out for a humiliating 55. Australia's openers then put on a stand of 117 before Barnes was out late on day one. Bradman came out to bat to a tremendous reception in what would clearly be his final test innings. England captain Norman Yardley called for three cheers for Bradman, and he then settled in to face leg spinner Eric Hollies. Bradman blocked his first ball, went to do the same to the next, but it was a wrong one and took the inside edge of his bat before hitting his stumps. Here's how John Arlett called it on the BBC. No run, still 117 for one. Two slips, a silly mid-off and a forward short leg close to him as Hollies pitches the ball up slowly and he's bowled. Can be 
Hardman bold Holly's not bold Holly's not and what do you say under those circumstances how I wonder if you see a ball very clearly in your last test in England the ground where you played out some of the biggest cricket of your life and where the opposing team have just stood around you and given you three cheers and the crowd has clapped you all the way to the wicket and if you really see the ball at all going into that final innings Bradman had scored 6,996 runs in 69 completed innings at an average of 101.39. Had he made four runs, he would have finished with 7,000 runs from 70 completed innings at an average of exactly 100. But as it was, his final average was 99.94. His dismissal was a surprise to all, not least the newsreel camera operator. Although they captured the moment of Bradman being bowled, they had not filmed the bowler running up and so had to ask Eric Hollies to help them by bowling a ball on the wicket for the cameras, probably early the next day. If you look up the footage, you can see the fabrication. The shadows are at a totally different length, and the non-striking batsman should be in shot, but is not. Incidentally, the non-striker was Arthur Morris, who went on to become one of Australia's finest ever batsmen. He made 196 in this match, possibly the most forgotten century in Test cricket. Here's what Morris told ABC Television on his 90th birthday... I said, yeah, I, I was there. And he said, where are you? He said, what were you doing over there? Were you on business? I said, no, I was up the other end. Making 196, no less. After that duck, Bradman belted three consecutive centuries in the final games of the tour just to show that he still had it, including a commanding 150 against the MCC in his last appearance at Lords. But as far as tests were concerned, that was it. And it was the final time he ever played at the Oval. In all first-class games at the Oval, Bradman batted 12 times, scoring 1,392 runs with six centuries and three fifties at an average of 139.2. From answering criticisms of his technique, an Ashes-winning double century in an innings that might have inspired Bodyline, to another Ashes-winning double century scored at blistering pace, followed by near death, and then a broken ankle and humiliating defeat, and his final last ball duck, and in between loads and loads of runs against Surrey, the Oval was a place of great significance in Bradman's career. And finally, a statistic to end it all, as far as Test cricket is concerned, there are 30 players who make the leaderboard for best averages at the Oval. 29 of them are English. In terms of runs, even though he only played four innings, Bradman is in 23rd place of all time, with 553. In terms of average, Wally Hammond is 5th, with an average of 72. Mike Gatting, 4th, average 73. Len Hutton is 3rd, on 89. Herbert Sutcliffe is 2nd, with an average of 92. And in 1st place, it's Donald George Bradman, averaging 138.25. I hope you enjoyed this, my second Dennett's Deep Dive. Thanks for subscribing to Cricket Unfiltered on Patreon, and I'll be back next month with another Dennett's Deep Dive. Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. 
kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.